Hello and welcome to Stories of the Second World War. Today I'm joined by acclaimed historian, writer, and broadcaster James Holland. He has written many books about the Second World War, which I know you are all familiar with, but today we'll be discussing his latest book titled Big Week, The Biggest Air Battle of World War II. James Holland, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me on, though. It's a, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to have you. So your new book, Big Week, is about the series of Allied air raids against Nazi Germany itself in February of 1944. This is, of course, the late war period now, but setting the stage a little for us, what did the Allies hope to gain from these air raids? Well, the big thing is, is what they realized in the summer of 1943 is that they really needed to clear the skies of particularly Northwest Europe of the Luftwaffe. So the priority became destroying the Luftwaffe. And the reason for that is twofold. First of all, obviously bombing is much more efficient if you haven't got to deal with enemy fighters trying to shoot you down. And in actual fact, it was something like 0.002% of shells shot down a bomber. In other words, flak, anti-aircraft guns from the ground, were an incredibly inefficient way of trying to shoot down the enemy. Whereas a fighter plane was much, has something like a sort of 15, 20% chance of shooting something down. So um, a much greater chance. And so these were clearly the threat. So obviously, if you haven't got to contend with your number one threat when you're bombing, your bombing is going to be more effective because you're going to be able to more easily reach the target. You're not going to be inter- interfered with. You're not going to lose bombers en route to the target and all the rest of it. But the uh, second point of it is that actually what you need to do is clear airspace, not over the invasion, just over the invasion beaches of D-Day uh, for, for, for Operation Overlord in Normandy, but also the all of Northwest Europe. Because, and this is an absolute prerequisite for any invasion of the continent, because in the run-up, so basically once you get to, you, you might have in Britain stocked up, you know, lots and lots of divisions, zillions of tanks and jeeps and guns and ammunition and all the things you need for the invasion. You get, you've got all that huge material advantage that the Allies have. But to begin with, you're not going to be able to bring that to bear because you're limited by shipping capacity. So to start off with the moment you land on D-Day and the next few days that follow, you've got this critical moment when who is going to kind of, who's going to win that race for the build-up of supplies? Is it going to be you, the Allies, or is it going to be the Germans hurriedly trying to reinforce the bridgehead around Normandy. And it was the job of the air forces to make sure that the latter didn't happen. So the way you do that is by slowing up any um, German reinforcements coming to Normandy. And the way you do that is by destroying roads and marshalling yards and bridges and all the rest of it, making it as difficult as you possibly can for the Germans to actually get there. And for that, air power is absolutely key. But you do that with fighter bombers, and you do that with smaller medium bombers, twin engine bombers, and you do that with greater accuracy operating at lower heights. And the only way you successfully do that is if you're not going to be shot down by the Luftwaffe. So you need to get rid of the Luftwaffe to make sure you can do that effectively. And so suddenly there is this huge imperative to clear the skies of Northwest Europe, PDQ, very quickly, um, or else there's not going to be a cross-channel invasion. So the whole fate of Operation Overlord, of D-Day and Normandy and all that comes beyond right up to the 8th of May 1945, rests on securing air superiority over Northwest Europe. And that is the nub of it. And that is why Big Week is so important, because Big Week is the moment where they go on an all-out attack to try and destroy the the Luftwaffe or damage Luftwaffe as much as possible. I'm sorry, that's a very long-winded answer, but there's no simple way of saying it, Noah. Militarily speaking, what did the Luftwaffe look like at this point? 
in terms of its strengths when compared to the air power of the Allies? I mean, I would imagine this is indeed late war. Did they have, you know, a um, sizable um, number of fighters and bombers left over or had, had their resources been exhausted? Yeah, that's a really good question. Well, you know, if, you, if you're inside the Luftwaffe camp, you would say they're on their knees and, and you know, it's all looking incredibly bleak which it is. Um, but what they've done is they've, they've sort of entrenched. So most of their fighter forces have been moved back into the, into the, into the Reich. So they've basically cleared most of Italy of the Luftwaffe. They basically cleared much of the Eastern front of, of the Luftwaffe. Most of the fighter planes are concentrated within Germany. And the other thing that's happened in the second half of 1943 is they've completely reorganized their air defense system. And Britain at the start of the war is the only country to have a fully coordinated air defense system. No one else has thought of it. And the Germans, because their whole DNA is about going on the offensive and going on the attack, they don't think they need a defense system because no one's going to attack them from the air because they're going to dominate by their aggressive offensive actions. So only, only sort of after the failure of the Battle of Britain, uh, um, with RF bomber command starting to bomb them, albeit not very effectively, do they start thinking about an air defense system? And it sort of grows organically and it's not really very effective. Suddenly in the summer of 1943, they go, hang on a minute. You know, and this is prompted particularly by, um, the appalling bombing of, of, of Hamburg, where that sort of, you know, Germany's number two city is almost completely destroyed. There's only thing, hang on a minute. We really need to kind of pull our finger out here and, and create a much better air defense system. And it's basically created on the same principles as the British air defense system, but just a little bit better because, you know, three or four years on, the equipment and, and, and technology is so much more sophisticated and it's pretty effective. So for the Allies' point of view, they've, they're coming up against a much more effective fighter defense force. The flip side of that is the quality of the pilots. So they've got lots and lots of aircraft, which are not as good as the latest Americans and British fighter aircraft. They've also got lots of fighter pilots but the problem is because they're so short of fuel, they can't train very well. So if you think back in 1940, an average RAF or average Luftwaffe fighter pilot would have probably 150 to 170 hours in their logbook before they join a frontline squadron. By 19, middle of 1943, that figure is about 350 hours for British and American fighter pilots. But it's kind of 100 hours if you're lucky in the Luftwaffe. And that's because cutting corners on training programs, and it's all down to the shortage of fuel. And the problem is, is because they're involved in the war all the time, they've got nowhere where they can train apart from Europe. Whereas American pilots and indeed British pilots can, can train in the clear skies of North America and indeed Africa and elsewhere. Uh, and then come back to Britain and, and operate from Britain where, you know, obviously it's, it's kind of dark in the middle of winter and it's, the weather's a bit more inclement. Germans don't have that luxury. And because of the lack of fuel, they don't have much opportunities to train once they get to a frontline squadron. Whereas an American guy coming, you know, arriving from America into Britain and joining the 8th Air Force, for example, as a fighter pilot, he would have 350 hours in his logbook. There would be maybe kind of 50 pilots for 16 aircraft airborne in a squadron. And in between that, so that's an enormous overlap. And in between that time, they can train like crazy. And there's enough, you know, experienced guys in the squadron who can help them, show them some of the ropes and all the rest of it. So in terms of skill sets, they're just in a different league compared to the Luftwaffe at that point. But the big problem is, is most of the Luftwaffe industry, which you need to destroy to also just, you know, 
it's not just a question of fighting aircraft in the in the skies. You want to attack the the factories and all the rest of it. They are quite deep in land, and only at the very end of 1943 is there an aircraft that has the range to escort bombers all the way deep into Germany. And that is the big crisis that faces the Allies. The crisis facing the Luftwaffe, of course, is just shortage of fuel, shortage of trained pilots. You know, the net closing in around them, and you know they're clearly going to lose the war. But it's it's the outcome is not in doubt by the end of 1943. It's just how long it's going to drag on and how many allied young lives and other lives are going to be lost before the final victory is achieved. Yeah, indeed. That's fascinating. So particularly what type of aircraft was used by both the Germans and the Allies during Operation Argument or Big Week? So for the for the Germans, the main fighter planes are in terms of daylight attack, it is the Focke-Wulf 190 and it is the Messerschmitt 109. Now the Messerschmitt 109, when it at the start of the war in 1939, is absolutely without question the best fighter in the world. And that's the Messerschmitt 109E. But what, what Messerschmitt have tried to do is create new models, and they've tried with the ME209, and then there's a ME309, and they're just absolute disasters. And they're they're just sort of swamped by red tape by the Machiavellian world of Luftwaffe and Nazi politics, by backhanders, by nepotism, by a whole host of things um, that the Allies don't have to deal with. And they're just complete dogs. So what ends up happening is they keep upgrading the 109. But the airframe is is a sort of mid-1930s airframe, and it can't really cope with that kind of upgraded engine. So in many ways, the 109F and the 109G, although faster, are not as manoeuvrable, and they're just simply not as good as the latest British and American models. And in terms of, of, of British, when you've got the Spitfire, which keeps being upgraded with ever more powerful engines, what it lacks in, in range, it certainly makes up for in uh, manoeuvrability and uh, firepower and speed. There's new fighter aircraft coming in, the Hawker Typhoon and Tempest, which are just totally awesome aircraft. Um, but in terms of the Americans, really, it's, it's the P-38, which is a twin-engine fighter, which is not so good, but has a bit of range. Uh, but then the P-47 Thunderbolt, which is, you know, amazing, is an, you know, can take unbelievable amount of punishment, is a very good gun platform, can dive faster than anything else, um, very, very powerful um, aircraft and really, really good. Um, but the absolute king is the P-51 Mustang, which, when it first developed, is, is twinned with an Allison engine. And it's not much good at all, but then they put a Rolls-Royce Merlin in it and suddenly it transforms it. It becomes much more fuel efficient and, you know, it's, it's the fuel efficiency and its speed increase with height. And height is really important in a fighter aircraft because you want to have height so that you can attack your, your enemy at a time and place of your choosing. The height, the higher you are, the faster you can dive down on them. You can snuck in behind before they've noticed. And the other thing is also you can maneuver behind the sun. So as long as you're attacking during daylight, you know, you're going to be, a, you know, heights of 26,000 feet or 30,000 feet or whatever, you're going to be above the cloud base. So you can maneuver so that you can attack with the sun behind you so that the person you're attacking can't see you coming. So height is a huge advantage. Uh, And the Mustang just gets faster and faster the higher it goes. So at 30,000 feet, it can do something like 455 miles an hour, which is 70 miles an hour faster than a Fokker Wolf 190 or an ME109 at that height. So, you know, these are really huge advantages. Twin that with amazing flying skill which the americans have and you've got a winning force the thing about the mustang of course is it it has the capacity to be able to fly all the way to to berlin and back but that is only realized sort of late summer of of 1943 or or certainly realized in terms of this is the answer to our problems of of how do we escort 
bombers all the way deep into Germany. That that has only realized sort of really late summer 1943. Then you've got to hurriedly build lots of these things. So it's only at the beginning of 1944 that they're really coming into into being and, and starting to play a kind of a key critical role in the Eighth Air Force daylight operations. And it is a total game changer. I mean, you know, for my money, the, the Mustang is the most important aircraft ever built because it has the most it has the most important and decisive impact on um, aerial uh, um, warfare than any other aircraft I can think of. So really getting into sort of the, the meat and potatoes of Big Week, you know, this was a conflict that developed into the largest air battle of World War II. Well, how exactly did that happen? How did these allied air raids turn into something so much more? Well, what you got to remember is that, you know, whenever the weather allowed, you know, bombers were going over every single day, they were going over every single night, you know, fighter planes were escorting them, they were tussling and all the rest of it. The point about Big Week, Operation Argument, is that it is a concentrated, it is it is set up as a concentrated single operation, albeit over a week, a week of time. And what you've got by that stage, I mean, originally it was conceived in, in early November 1943, but actually it was a good job that the weather didn't allow it. I mean, the weather in 19 and the winter of 1943 early 1944 was absolutely brutal not just over britain but over the continent as well Uh, and it just didn't allow for a sustained multiple day operation um like argument uh, like big week so it's only in the third week of february that the weather clears enough to allow consecutive days of combined operations by that stage the mighty eighth the eighth air force has become significantly bigger and, and it can regularly field you know, a thousand bombers a day. I mean, a thousand bombers. If you think back to Battle of Britain in 1940, I mean, the number of times the Luftwaffe are sending over more than a hundred bombers at one time, you could count on one hand. So, you know, this is a totally different, different kettle of fish. And you're, you know, and bomber commander sending over 800 every night. So that's kind of, you know, 1800 aircraft, allied bombers alone coming over in a 24 hour period to hit a German target. Then combine that with, you know, best part of 800 fighter planes. That's a heck of a lot of planes coming over. And then you add on to the kind of, you know, the, the kind of sort of 1,500, 2,000 fighter planes that the Germans have at that stage to defend Germany. And that is, there is, there is, you know, in the history of the world, there has never been a more intense engagement of air combat than that week. So in what ways had Hitler prepared, or my guess is failed to prepare for the final defense of Germany at this point? I mean, were there any uh, defensive precautions taken? I mean, you mentioned the ineffectiveness of flak anti-aircraft guns. And of course, the Germans uh, did send their fighters up to meet the Allies. But um, in what ways did the Nazis not really think this one through in terms of defending the the final um, days of the Reich? The problem that the Germans have all the way through is that they're kind of, you know, they're always fighting the war with a hand tied behind their back by Hitler because Hitler thinks he's a kind of military genius and he just isn't. And, you know, the, the German way of war has always been to kind of go on the attack, always be uh, the aggressor. And that's something that kind of Hitler completely buys into. So in, you know, in September 1943, Goering, for example, who's commander in chief of the Luftwaffe, calls in all his senior commanders. And they're all very super competent people with experience. They're young, they're dynamic, they've got lots of good ideas. You know, they're exactly the sort of people that should be running the show. And he calls them all together and he goes, right, we're going to focus everything on defending the, on the Reich. It's all going to be about fighters now. And they all go, hooray, you know, what a good idea. I mean, 10 minutes later, Hitler rings up and goes, I want you to form a bomber force uh, and go back and attack, um, attack Britain. I want the, the second blitz to happen. And, you know, it's just, it's just insane because 
you know, it didn't work in September 1940 to May 1941 when they had quite a lot of bombers. They've now got even less bombers. Britain's defences are significantly improved. And if it didn't work the first time, it certainly ain't going to work in 1943, 1944. But, you know, the Fuhrer is the Fuhrer and you've got to do what you've got to do. So, you know, and, and if he says this is what you've got to do, you've got to do it. You know, so it, it, it's insane. The flip side of that is you've got the, the air defence system, which is much improved. You have got um, these series of very competent young commanders, you know, people like Adolf Galland and so on, who is the general of fighters. You know, they're really good and, and they're really competent. You've got people like Hyatt Herman, who's developing the builders out, the wild boars. You know, they're, they, they're not going to win, but they still pose a considerable threat to an allied air force. Uh, and that's the point. I mean, Germany, in my, in my humble opinion, is, is, has lost the war by, certainly by November 1941, with the failure of Operation Barbarossa, which is the invasion of the Soviet Union. So from then on, it is just, you know, how quickly can they be defeated? Um, but because they're so determined to keep fighting, and because they've got some half-decent kit, and because they've got fanatical fighters and all the rest of it, you know, from a from an attacker's point of view, that they still pose a significant enemy, you know, a significant opposition that can't be taken lightly. And and frankly, the the, the casualty rates of the Allied air forces, the strategic air forces attacking Germany, are, are testimony to that. So in terms of actual aerial combat, um, would the primary role of the Allied fighters and indeed the P-51 Mustangs have been to um, simply escort the bombers or were they sent on, you know, um, strafing missions as well? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's not just about escorting. You, when you're, what you're actually doing is it's called about an escort, but actually what you're really doing is protecting the bombers. You protect the bombers in two ways. What you really want to do is you want to goad the fighter force up into the enemy fighter force up into the air and then attack them and shoot them down in droves. Uh, and what they're also, Jimmy Doolittle, um, the legend is Jimmy Doolittle, takes over command of 8th Air Force in, in very early January 1944. One of the first things he does is he tells General Bill Kepner, who's the commander of um, 8th Fighter Command, the, the, the fighter wing of the 8th Air Force, um, he says, says to him, right, you know, what I want you to do is, is no more of this, this close escort stuff. I want you to send your, I want your, your fighter planes to go out and maraud. I want them to shoot down everything. And when they fly back, I want them to go down on the ground and shoot up every airfield you can. I mean, the important thing is to just destroy as many Luftwaffe planes as you possibly can. That is the best way to protect your 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 air your, you know your bombers, and um, you know it proves very very effective. There's more and more. Big week is a big watershed because although it doesn't destroy the Luftwaffe, the losses they suffer are, are enormous. Uh, and although it doesn't destroy all the factories, you know it destroys them enough. And what it does allow the Allies to do is it, it sort of fatally wounds them really. And it enables the Allies to then really drive forward over March and April and really hammer home the advantage that they've gained over Big Week. Uh, and in the months that follow, you know, the, 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 you know, the Luftwaffe is just chewed up. It's just completely ground down. And it just, it just doesn't have enough of anything to compete with this overwhelming numbers of, of American uh, and to a certain extent British as well, fighter planes that are coming, the bombers that are coming over and all the rest of it. Um, it's 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 just an incredible period, you know, and and yeah, you know, big week is is probably deserves a much greater position in our general wider, broader understanding of the Second World War than it's given. So, in terms of the the leadership of again both the Allies and the Germans, what individual leaders of the um, Luftwaffe and Allied air forces were involved in the 
creation and outlook of Operation Argument and what roles did they play in the actual conflict? Well, so um, in case in the case of the Allies, so you have um, the, the Royal Air Force is, is, is broadly sort of split into commands, although the Second Tactical Air Force has already been formed by the end of 1943, uh, which is the force that's going to go into France and support the operations on the ground in Normandy. But you have Bomber Command, you have Coastal Command, you have Training Command, you have Fighter Command. Um, whereas America, the US, deals with, the, with, with air forces, which have components of everything in it. And, and the 8th Air Force, which has been established in, first established in Britain in summer of 1942, has Bomber Component and it has a, you know, it has a Fighter Component. And those components have their own commanders. And then there is the overall commander. So in the case of um, the 8th Air Force, it was Ira Ika. He has moved to the Mediterranean at the end of 1943, and Jimmy Doolittle takes over um, a command. And then you have people like Bill Kepner, who is, of course, the um, 8th um, Fighter Command commander. Then you have uh, um, uh, General Fred Anderson, who is the Bomber Command uh, uh, commander. And over them, you then have General Carl Tui Sputz, who is the head of all American strategic air forces in Europe, which includes all those air forces in Italy. There's the 15th Air Force formed over there, um, as well as the 8th Air Force and the 9th Air Force. Well, the 9th Air Force is more a tactical air force. So the 8th and the 15th, really, in, in Europe. So they are the commanders there. On the ground, in terms of um, the chain of command in, in the Luftwaffe, it is Goering at the top, then there's the Luftwaffe general staff. In terms of there are fighter divisions and the command of the first division is um a guy called beppo schmidt who was an old nazi who was in the beer hall putsch in 1923 uh, and used to be a luftwaffe intelligence officer at which he was absolutely useless but as an administrative officer he's actually quite good uh, and then there's uh, adolf gallant who i mentioned earlier you know who was a former condor legion fighting in the Sp- spanish civil war in the late 1930s you know flew in france in 1940 battle of britain fighter race you know an absolute legend um, and he is the he is the general of all German fighters. So you know the the, the second you know, a lot of these commanders they're they're pretty competent. The problem that you've got with the Germans is that they just don't have enough of anything, and that right at the top you've got Hitler, who is you know is absolutely useless. So surely Goering knew that the Luftwaffe was doomed at this point, or didn't he? And based on his his thoughts on the the matter and the outcome of the Reich, what sort of tactical decisions did he make to make up for the critical lack of fuel that um, the Germans had? Goering's in a really difficult position. I mean, he's a, he's a very, very competent businessman. He's a brilliant politician. I mean, he's the arch Machiavellian figure, really. Um, and he's absolutely key to understanding the development of, of the Nazi state. Although he was a First World War fighter commander, actually, he's not a very good military commander at all. Um, and he's very dependent on his next tier. Um, there's Erhard Milk, who is uh, effectively his number two. He's a Luftwaffe field marshal. He's super competent, you know, completely brilliant at what he does. Um, the problem they've got is they just, they just don't have enough resources. So training programs are cut. There's not enough, you know, blind flying training. Once you join your squadron, you know, a, a, a young fighter pilot has very little opportunity to, um, do further training. You just have to learn on the job and wing it, and hope you hope you somehow survive and get through. But you know your chances of surviving in the air battle when you're coming up against super skilled, highly brilliant American pilots flying really, really amazing planes is not high, uh, and that's why the casualty figures are just so absolutely 
gobsmackingly enormous. Um, and a lot of them are just accidents as well because they're just not trained enough, don't have enough experience to be handling these kind of, you know, fly machines. Um, there's not an awful lot that, that, that Goering can do. And even when Goering does have good ideas, he tends to be overruled by Hitler, whose ideas are terrible. I mean, you know, an absolute classic example of this is, you know, they're developing the ME262 jet, the Messerschmitt 262. You know, it's, it's, it's never going to be a game changer, but it's very obviously designed to be a fighter. Hitler says, no, I want it to be a bomber. And, you know, everyone just, the morale of everyone is just absolutely crushed by this because it's so self-evident that it should be a fighter plane. And he's saying, no, it needs to be a bomber. And so you've, you've got this, this amazing new machine, which is an enormous fillet to everybody in the Luftwaffe, and particularly in that kind of sort of level of command. And yet you're not allowed to use it in the way that it should be used. And, and you just want to sort of beat your head against a brick wall. But what can you do? The Fuhrer is the Fuhrer. And, and the reason Germany is still going is because Hitler always sees the world in black and white. There's no gray area at all. And for Hitler, it's always been a case of, it's either the Thousand Year Reich or it's Armageddon. Uh, and it is really down to the German people and the will of the German people. Either they're up for it and they're good enough and they're strong enough to, to deliver victory or they're not. And if they don't, they don't deserve it. And that is will, the will of the people, the will of the Germans and all the rest of it. This is a kind of sort of language that Hitler uses all the time. And Goering is just powerless to do anything other than conform to what Hitler says. And once hit, once Goering, as Hitler's lackey, starts issuing orders, all those competent people like Milk and Galland and, uh, and others are very limited in what they can do as well, because they also have to follow orders. I mean, it's, it's, it's an absolute mess, frankly. So just the last question that I'll ask you is, you know, after Operation Argument started to unfold, what were the results like? And certainly what did those results mean and how did they affect the outcome of the Second World War? Yeah, sure. That's a good question. Well, you know, the damage immediately, um, you know, the propaganda was, you know, this has been a rip-roaring success, that we've destroyed lots of factories, that, you know, lots of German planes have been shot down. And then the sort of cool light of day, they realized that actually they hadn't achieved quite as much as they thought they had. However, it didn't really matter because they had set back those aircraft factories quite significantly, and that is enough. Where they really won points was in the loss of pilots. And it doesn't matter how many production, you know, how many Fokker Wolf 190s and Messerschmitt 109s you're producing. If you haven't got the men to fly them, you might as well not have them. And what's going on there is the Luftwaffe are, are producing all these aircraft and going, well, look, you know, we've, we've built 2,000 fighter planes this month. Aren't we impressive? What they're not then, so what that doesn't show is the, the effectiveness of the fighters that are flying. And the degradation that takes place over the first two months of 1944, but accelerated during that concentrated air battle of Big Week, is enormous. I mean, it's absolutely colossal. And what that means is, as the Allies move into March and into the first two weeks of April, what they're doing is they're coming up against a Luftwaffe, which is fatally crippled. Because although at the beginning of 1944, there are still a number of really experienced fighter races still flying with within the Luftwaffe, those numbers are getting whittled down. You know, there's just attrition. It's just taking its hold. And the number of inexperienced pilots is increasing. And if you put a really poorly trained pilot in an inferior plane against an incredibly skilled pilot in a superior plane, what's going to happen? 
they're going to get shot down. And that is exactly what happened. And the net result is that by the middle of April 1944, the absolute cutoff point for D-Day in terms of securing airspace, the Allies have achieved that. That has been achieved. That is a massive tick. What that means is that overlord can happen, that um, the focus can be on destroying all those bridges and marshalling yards that I mentioned right at the beginning. And it means ultimately that D-Day can happen. And the rest, as they say, is history. So it is of vital, vital importance. And, and Big Week, although the naysayers point out that the factories weren't as destroyed as perhaps they had initially hoped, actually, it is a really, really significant victory for the Allies and especially for the Americans. Fascinating. Well, James Holland, thank you so much for um, speaking with me today. It's been delightful to have you on the podcast. I encourage you all to pick up a copy of Big Week, the biggest air battle of World War II. But thanks so much for coming on. Thank you, Noah. Thank you all so much for listening today to Stories of the Second World War. Please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting platform and consider leaving a positive rating and review. You can also find the podcast at storiesofthesecondworldwar.com with more information about the show. Thanks so much for listening. Join us here again next week.